Welcome listeners of Illusion to Temporal Discussion, the episode-by-episode nightmare retrospective podcast. I'm Martin Harder, and I haven't thought of something to put in here yet. (laughs) Thank God we're not professionals, we'd have been fired over a year ago. I'm Martin O'Doni, and I'm back, so expect a vast improvement (laughs) in the quality of the podcast. I'll probably think of something to put in and put it no, in. Just leave it as it is. Maybe I, I won't. It, yeah. Yeah. I think it works. I think that works seamlessly. It's it's a real a real honest insight into the way we work as well. I did get told off on Patreon by uh, Mr. David Newton for apologising too much. Did you say sorry? <laughs> <laughs> It's Sunday lunchtime, so I'm going to start with my Sunday lunchtime beer, which today is Aunt Bessie's Jam Roly Poly Pale Ale, which is actually considerably nicer than it sounds. How much are they paying you? (laughs) Nothing at all. It's all free. I do it for the love of it. It does genuinely taste quite like Jam Roly Poly. That's a plus, as long as it's not soaked in beer is the important thing. (laughs) (laughs) Jam Roly Poly in beer. That sounds terrifying. Anyway, what are we looking at today, Mr. H? Well, today we're looking at Series 3 episode 12 it was originally broadcast on friday the 24th november 1989 the number one song this week was you've got it the right stuff by new kids on the block oh vomit I can't bloody stand them. The song was the second single from the group's second album, Hanging Tough. The single was originally simply called The Right Stuff on the album, but the name was changed for the single release in order to avoid confusion with Vanessa Williams' song, The Right Stuff, a far superior single that charted earlier in the year. Frankly, the fact that we're calling Vanessa Williams' The Right Stuff a far superior single really tells you how bad the New Kids song is. It tells you how bad the charts were at the time. The fact that New Kids kept selling, says a lot about the state of the charts at the end of the 80s. You deliberately put that in there as a trap, didn't you? Yes, I deliberately went back in time and rearranged the singles charts. Yeah, you got Sylvester McCoy to come into the future to pick you up and take you back to... <laughs> yeah, that's a, I've, it's, it, it's, it's frankly, it's the only plausible explanation I can think of, so I'm sticking with it. What was number one at the box office that weekend? It was the Bob Smekis time travel comedy sequel, Back to the Future Part 2. Do you remember the future? You've got to come back with me. Where? Back to the future. Are we back? We're back. October 21st, 2015. Marty, we're going to be able to see our wedding. Wow. Future. I got to check this out, Doc. Look what happened to your son. He's a complete wimp. Don't talk to anyone. You've been looking. Don't touch anything. I need to borrow your hoverboard. Try not to look at anything. 
on the subject of time travel. See? Yes. <laughs> now I know it's the truth. Now I'm not just suspicious. I know you've got the doctor coming, the DeLorean, to pick you up and track you back. Quite frankly, th- this is a brilliant film. They all are. They all are the Back to the Future. Yeah, I don't think there's anything that we can really say that hasn't been said like a That's thousand true. times about just one, the Back one to little, the Future um, trilogy. Uh, little nugget of uh, sort of trivia about it that um, people may not know. The evil Biff from the alternates of 1985 um, in Back to the Future 2 was actually based on Donald Trump. So uh, just uh, something to think about there. You've lived through four years of what Marty McFly barely survived one night of. I've just worked it out. We're living in the timeline where Biff stole the almanac. It must be. That's the only expansion I can think of. I'm going to let you do the news bit because there's names that I can't pronounce. As you apparently mentioned before, I haven't I haven't had the recording of the, uh, the previous one yet. This date saw the, uh, the resignation of Milos Jakes and indeed the entire Politburo of the Czechoslovak Communist Party in response to the Velvet Revolution protests. Alexander Dubček returned to Prague from his exile and addressing a crowd of 250,000 people gathered in Venturesler Square, he said that his idea of socialism with a human face was living with a new generation. It is very odd looking back on 1989 and the collapse of the Eastern Bloc from a today's perspective because in today's perspective we've got all these films that pr- present politics in a much more complex and a much less simplistic light than they were back then. But mm. actually 1989 it was really simple. For decades we were warned that we had to throw thousands of billions of pounds at resisting communism because if we didn't, it would spread from country to country. Free markets of the world would collapse as the number of trading partners reduced. And this is called the domino theory. And yet, actually, the domino went in completely opposite direction. It, it, <laughs> it did actually happen. It was um, the entire Eastern Bloc fell away, um, literally one after the other, in the space of about 10 days. It was dizzying to follow, just as a 14-year-old. But I'm looking at it now and I'm thinking, that, that's a rare occasion when reality did an impression of Hollywood movies. It happened so quickly and so simply and so with such unstoppable momentum, it actually did look like a movie going on. Well, what it says to me is that protests, you know, when people do actually get their sh** together and group unmasked to try and enact change, protests do actually work. They do, they do. There's people out there who say they don't, but they need to figure out where they get the, you know, it's a weekend, we've got the day off. Why are we allowed the day off? Think about it. Uh, are you going on a holiday this year? You wouldn't be allowed to if it wasn't for protesters. Anyway, off our soapbox. I am actually going on holiday this year. I'm going to North Wales and I'm visiting some of the castles that they uh, used to film Nightmare at. It's where about 95% of the castles that are left in Britain still stand. And now time turns, the recording light burns, time out is gone, the podcast is on. Greetings, sit you down and settle in and let adventuring begin. But before we start... Let's just recall the score. In this age of heroes, nine teams have challenged my dungeon, and nine teams have failed. This is how the last one fared. Remember Scott from Aldershot? Well, now he's home in Hants again, for things got really rather hot for these four young Hampshire men. A horn they took, and with it called upon an angry elfin maid who, though she slew a guard for them, curtly refused them further aid. And so at last, when steps were called and young Scott went to make a leap, he leapt and missed and fell into the lower regions of the deep. Now maids from Leicester call the tune and challenge where the lads have failed. Julie's entered her first dungeon room, and what she's found is now detailed. Um. 
As ever, we start with a dungeon ditty. Um, this is yet another one that starts okay, but it just seems to lose heart towards the end. Was, uh... Yeah, well, any dungeon ditty that mentions Aldershot automatically gets an extra point from me, obviously, because I live in Aldershot. That's lovely and objective of you, yeah. Okay. Mm-hmm. But the rhyming scheme for this one is really all over the place. Let me just suggest something about this. I come from Exeter. If you can mm. find a legitimate rhyme for Exeter that you could fit into a dungeon ditty, you will get an automatic pass, no matter what the rest of the rhyme is like. Because I can't think of one. Of the, the best I can think of as a rhyme is litter. Isn't this a bit early in history for litter? The best I can think of is Brexiteer, which is definitely yeah, too early yeah, for that. So, so we've got Scott Aldershot, Again Men, Maid and Aid, Leap and Deep. It's actually, it's actually going okay here, but then it pops up by rhyming tune with room. And failed with detail. That's not so bad. Tune and room isn't terrible. It's not terrible, but it's it's it is a cop out. It, it is a cop out. But the yeah. real problem, you, you say it yourself, the rhyming scheme is is awkward. The real problem is that a lot of the lines don't really scan very well. Um, so the lines they use that uh, Traegon uses to describe uh, Scott's fall are definitely too long. There's an extra half a clause in each line that makes it overrun. That's the main failing for me. Got to give it a fail, I'm afraid. Out of ten, it's a gallant fail. I'll say five out of ten. There's nothing glaringly awful in it, but it's it's still tune and room do not rhyme. I'm sorry, they just don't. If you'd like to take, it's like goodness me, but you can't be sane. Do you mind me asking you a question? No. Are you by any chance awfully fond of large poisonous snakes? No. Then I don't think you're going to like it here very much. First of all, I can practically hear our youth correspondent Feathered Menace getting angry at Melisandre for referring to the snake as poisonous instead of venomous. It's got a point. How do you get past a poisonous snake? Don't eat it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Although venom is a form of poison, so in a manner of speaking, it's not massively wrong. It's wrong enough. It's wrong enough, yes. It shouldn't, it shouldn't be referred to as poisonous. It should be referred to as venomous. Dungeoneer Julie and her advisors, Amanda Marie and Angela from Knighton in Leicestershire, begin the episode having just entered the lair of the dreaded car. But before anything else can happen, Melisandre runs in and informs Julie of the dangers she faces. The team decide to trust Melisandre, and as Carl rises from the pit, she guides Julie out through the door on the right. In some ways, I can understand why they're pushing that one out of the way quickly, because you've got the problem with this lair is it's becoming boring by now because the same thing happens every single time, including the snake portraying all of exactly the same movements. You're thirsty, aren't you? Well, I'm now drinking uh, Coca-Cola Intergalactic, which is a controversial flavour, apparently. A lot of people don't like it. How much are they paying you? They are not. In fact, I got it on clearance. Okay. 58 pence for the can. Oh, my God. (laughs) You paid that much? (laughs) Intergalactic Cola? (laughs) It's an interesting flavour. There's definitely carrot in it. When I hear someone describing um, a drink as having an interesting flavour... I immediately think of someone trying to hook up two of their friends and trying to convince someone he's got a great personality. You, know, you mean he's ugly? Yeah. That's sort of thing. When you were a kid, did you ever dissolve candy floss in your cola? No, I didn't. Although I, I, I sometimes saw friends doing it. For those of you who actually did do that when you were kids and you haven't tried this stuff, it tastes like that basically okay not going to be a huge amount of help to me there but uh, no. I'm, sure, I'm, I'm sure somebody <laughs> will be able to make use of that in a pub quiz at some point can you tell i'm dancing around the fact this is actually a pretty boring episode well 
possibly, but um, <laughs> I'm actually going to be in contention with you over that. Maybe not boring, but this team frustrate me. I'm going to be in contention <laughs> with you over that as well, actually. <laughs> okay. Fine. Um, you, okay. you, 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 you may find you've been judging them a bit harshly. Oh, no. oh quickly, this way! Quickly, follow me! Quickly! Oh, dear! Here! Oh, dear! Here! Oh. Quickly! Oh, dear, dear me. Seeing as you don't like snakes, I'm not going to tell you much about where we are, except to say that you've got to trust me. Right. Now, there's a sort of narrow bridge ahead, and when I say go, you've got to walk straight across it. Got that? Yep. At the end, just to the left, there's a ledge, and you've got to get onto that ledge to escape. Right. Your friends will have to guide you, because I'm not allowed this way. So anyway, Melisandre has led them into the serpent's mouth cavern, which I think is a rather unkind thing to do after <laughs> establishing that Judy doesn't like snakes. The tongue is moving a bit slowly, uh, a bit more slowly than usual. Once Melisandre guides Judy onto it, it very, very kindly and politely stops dead. And all the advisors really have to do is guide Judy onto the ledge at the far end. Yeah, and they still almost mess well, it I up. I don't think they handle it as badly as you're making out, actually. There's a slightly early instruction given, but it's quickly corrected. If you cover your ears and just watch they move very smoothly and, and maneuver onto the ledge very tidily it's just because of that early instruction they suddenly have to go back on rather suddenly it makes it sound like they're making a mess of it but it was only a very very slight very brief aberration i i, I don't really have a problem with the way they handled that okay i'll give you that one but only because i know what we've got coming up where they do really mess it up okay okay well um <laughs> i'm also got my thoughts on that ahead as well you've gone from being like really kind of strict on teams like this to being really forgiving and trying i don't to think there's find... much to forgive in this instance you... I, I really don't I just, you... we've we've swapped roles <laughs> yeah <laughs> you're usually the one picking holes and everything and i'm the one who's desperately trying to find some good in the situation <laughs> Okay, well, um, I, I, I think you need to lighten up then. <laughs> For heaven's sake, man. I just genuinely don't think they handled it that badly. I've, I've certainly seen worse. Oh, yeah, definitely seen worse. There was just that slightly early instruction given that they corrected themselves straight away without any difficulty. I think that's perfectly forgivable. I don't, I don't, I don't see anything to get agitated about. And walk forward. Quickly. Where am I? Um, you're in a room and it's got two exits, one on either side of the room, towards the back of the room. Um, there's a table in the middle of the room, and if you walk forward we'll be able to see what's on it. Come on team, get Julie to the food and worry about the clues later. So anyway, they successfully move on to the ledge and then arrive in Brangwen's clue room. I still can't figure out where the actual exit is on that ledge. It just seems to be a white wall there. I, I don't know, I, I, I can't see... I think it's behind the rock. There's a slight suggestion of shadow. Yeah, okay. I'll, I'll have another look and, and decide whether you're making that up. So anyway, we arrive in Brangwen's clue room. Traegard urges the team to take the food first to worry about the clues later. Excellent advice, which the team ignore entirely. You, you always fear for teams that think they know better than the dungeon master, don't you? Yeah. Once Julie's around the other side of the table, she begins describing what's on there. Traegard interrupts and tells them again to take the food. The uh, aubergine, which of course today is a very, very suggestive emoji on social media. I, yeah, I purposefully didn't mention and that I purposefully, <laughs> I purposefully sabotaged your efforts. We do have a few American listeners, so for them, that's what you call an eggplant. I didn't know why the Americans call them eggplants so I looked them up and if if you don't know why 
They're called eggplants. Do a Google image search for an unripe aubergine and you will see exactly why it makes perfect sense to call them eggplants. Uh, okay. I think it makes perfect sense to call them aubergines because everybody knows what you're talking about, but okay. Well, yeah. Yeah, I mean, aubergine is the correct word, but... Is it aubert for egg and gene for plants, then? I don't know. Anyway, she knapsacks the eggplants, and at that moment, the Guardian appears. Right, before we go any further, I'm going to send you a link to pictures of unripe aubergines. You're clearly not going to let this go, are you? Yeah, it makes more sense to call them aubergines because that's what they're called. But looking at this, you can see why people call them eggplants. Well, you have to see what you mean, actually. Yeah, looking at that. Yeah, they look like boiled eggplants, to be precise. Yeah. Yeah. Okay, fair enough. I seem to remember, and I don't know why this is, um, I, I feel the need to mention this, but I will. I remember um, a sketch show on children's BBC in the mid-80s called Fast Forward. I don't, I don't know if you remember it. Vaguely, I know it by name. Yeah, it was a sketch show. One of the things they routinely did it every week was a parody of Indiana Jones called India Rubber Jones. And I think, I may be wrong about this, but I think he had a sidekick called Eggplant. Now that I think about it, it might have been Cheese Plants, but I'm not sure that's any better. It was Cheese Plant which means this entire discussion was pointless. The point I'm making is it does get used rather a lot in all sorts of contexts, including offensive ones. So anyway, what are the riddles, Mr. H? I could try it, I suppose. Yeah, remember to Welsh it a bit. Oh, God. Can I just say here that my father-in-law is Welsh? So, Brian, I wholeheartedly apologise for this. Through fairy nut, but very grand, a queen of England's fair great land is dubbed by some the fairy queen. But tell me, which queen do they mean? And they say queen bee, falsehood. Yeah, how was my accent? I wasn't bad, actually. Falsehood. I don't know how a Welsh listener might take it. Um, anybody listening in Wales, by all means, give us, <laughs> give us some really, really invective-laden feedback on how terrible Mr. H's uh, impression of your accent was. So this is a reference to an epic poem by Edmund Spencer from around 1590. Yeah, this is correct. It's, it's not wholly accurate, this answer again, unfortunately. Elizabeth was actually known as the Virgin Queen um, rather than the Fairy Queen. And I suppose the conversations that might trigger among impressionable 12 year olds would lead to trouble so I can understand them trying to sidestep that but it might have been better just not to have this riddle in it at all Spencer's poem was based on Elizabeth basically trying to suck up to her so that he could get some money but I've never seen any real indication that the term fairy queen actually sort of stuck to the real world Elizabeth I she actually had very mixed feelings about the poem the character there was a character in it called Duessa I think it was which essentially means two face um, and that was the poem's portrayal of Mary Queen of Scots. It was, shall we say, unfortunate timing because the way Mary was portrayed in it was a horrible um, caricature of, of, of a prostitute, effectively. And then unfortunately, James VI of Scotland read a copy of it 
And as you can imagine, being the son of Mary, Queen of Scots, he was not very impressed. <laughs> um, at this time, England was at war with Spain to the south. So the last thing he could afford was to get into a conflict with Scotland to the north, because once again, England would find itself having to fight wars in two completely opposite directions. Mm. So Elizabeth had to very, very quickly distance herself from Spencer and the poem to make sure that um, there wasn't a sudden fresh war between Scotland and England. I've never seen any clear evidence that the term ever stuck to Elizabeth, and I don't think she would have liked if it had done. I think personally the poem has a lot more to do with Arthur than Elizabeth because it's the Tudor period and uh, the Tudors were descended from Welsh aristocrats. There was an attempt, especially by Henry VII, to sort of associate the Tudors as best they could with Arthur and try to make out they might have been Arthur's descendants. I don't think Elizabeth was particularly um, particularly bothered about that. I think the attempt had pretty much failed anyway. You can sort of say that links into Nightmare very, very loosely. Anyway, on to the next riddle. One musical note runs through the forest, but which note is the sound Why of Why are you giving her an American accent all of a sudden? I don't know. No. One musical note runs through the forest, but which note is the sound of light? And as anyone who's ever seen The Sound of Music knows, the answer is Ray. Ugh, a pun. So I'm assuming that the note that runs through the forest is a doe. Oh, yeah, yeah. I see how it works, though. Yeah, yeah, you're quite right. That is actually a very good point, though, yeah. So this one took them a good moment, despite Tregard's clue to think of the names of the notes. But they did get it in the end. Ray is a drop of golden sun. Yeah. And then, if air is clear and sunlight falls across the land, then where in all of the world would it be best to stand... They discuss this for a bit before they decide that the answer is on a mountain, Mm. uh, which they're given a truth for, but I personally think this might have been a close enough moment. I think it's like when um, Cedric had the Yorks and and Lancaster one, and uh, they said Yorkshire and Lancashire. It's one of those ones. That's not specific enough for me at all, um, uh, saying a mountain. Uh, mm. They should, clearly should have said Everest. The best place to stand on a clear night uh, to see the furthest of them all would actually be anywhere outdoors because you can see stars light years away at those times. Also, when they say across the land, do they mean the immediate land, so England? There is that which did occur to me, which would mean um, if it was Britain, it would be Ben Nevis. Mm. If it was England, it would be Scapel Pike. A few months ago, I was actually doing a little bit of research on British mountains. I think the first 243 tall tallest mountains in Britain are all outside England. The, the 244th biggest in Britain is, is Scapel Pike. The enormous contrast in the landscape between Scotland and Wales and England. Scotland dominates the first hundred of it. 96th is the largest um, mountain in Wales. They've got a few dozen before England joins the list. The differences in, in landscapes are quite astonishing given how close the countries are. Two is the score. The team learn that their quest is for the sword, but the Guardian denies them all other knowledge. Which, it doesn't seem fair. No, I get the feeling um, that they got the scripts muddled up here. Oh, possibly Tim Child was getting irritated with the slowness of the team's answers and considered offloading them. As it is, they appear to have got away with it. But yeah, they should have got some information there. The team examining the objects on the table. And uh, I will give the team points here for paying attention to previous episodes. When Julie mentions the humbug jar, Amanda disregards it based on the observation that there aren't actually any humbugs in it good thinking you see what i mean you're being rough on this team that's, that's actually pretty good reasoning that the team decide to take the candle and what they would describe as a piece of cloth which turns out to actually be a scarf they then guide julie through the door on the right
where am I? You're in a room and there's a scorpion um, in the room, so we've got to quickly direct you. Should we take it to the... Yeah. Another demand for careful timing, team. And this time you haven't the maid to help you. You'd better right. get it right, for this creature could seriously damage your life force. And we arrive in the spectral scorpion chamber. Now you think the team here have messed this up royally, don't you? I don't agree again. They stop her right in front of the stinger. Yeah, it's not done as badly as it seems. It's, it's only because one advisor tries to cancel the instruction from another while it's already been carried out that you get this impression of chaos. If you actually just look at the Dungeoneer, the truth is that Julie only very, very briefly has a pause in stride and then carries on. And in fact, this is possibly the quickest escape from the Spectral Scorpion ever. If you actually look at the amount of time they spend in the room, it's actually extremely quick. Oh, that's true, but I still think they're damn lucky. There's a bit of luck there, yeah. The advisor that cancelled the instruction and then reissued it should have just shut up and it would have been perfect. It would have been one of the best escapes from the Spectral Scorpion ever. But as it is, it didn't really do any harm. It just caused a brief break in stride and then Julie just carried on and she was at the exit before you could catch your breath. And again, it's not as bad as it initially looks. But you have to have something negative to say about the next scene, surely. Let's get to the next scene, shall we? <laughs> and have a little chat about it. Right, now quickly run forward. No, not now. Run, no, run, 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 go, 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 quickly, quickly. Where am I? You're in a room, and to your left, there's a door. And in front of Chamber you... mind? In front of you, I think, big. Yes, I think Walk forward two paces, Julie. Talk us through what your perspective on this is, Mr. H. So, in my opinion, this is the biggest f*** up of a bomb room since Akash's quest. You know, other than the people who didn't make it, obviously, yeah, but they yeah, were okay. always designed not to make it. Trengar warns the team that the chamber is mined, and yet they just carry on describing the room. If I walk into a room and something there is obviously going to kill me, I don't need to know what the colour of the wallpaper is. I just need to know how to get out. The one saving grace of the scene is the comical sounds emitted by the advisors when they begin to panic. <laughs> Again, you're being slightly harsh. Um, yes, they should have set off earlier. I agree with that. And the initial tidal wave of all the advisors shouting over each other could have led to lethalness. But again, in the cold light of day, all Julie did was turn left and walk forward as instructed. And she was out of the chamber very quickly. I'd say probably with a second or two to spare. The explosion seems to have been hurried up slightly for dramatic effect. None of my complaints are against Julie. That's fine. But Julie's it, it, a fine dungeoneer. Yeah. But she's also, she's actually getting good guidance. So, you know, the, the manoeuvring of the team is, is is actually generally quite tidy. It's it's not as slow as you're making it out to be. It's just, we've got this occasional one person speaks when they shouldn't, and they should let things carry on as they are, and that gives the impression of chaos. It's not a great team. They do have the kinks in their play, including, like I say, talking over each other at a time of panic. But I don't think they're that bad. I, I really don't think Julie's team are that bad. Who are you, and what have you done with Martin? Adoni. Well, who cares about him? <laughs> it's not great dungeoneering, but it's not terrible. If you'd actually say, how close are they to getting killed here? I'd say not particularly. Okay, they're not the worst, but they're not good by any stretch of the imagination. They're okay. I actually find that they're quite good at manoeuvring this team, and they show some intelligence at times as well. Yeah, okay. They're not stupid. I'll give you that. Stop and sidestep. Turn to your left, turn to your left, turn to your left, turn to your left, turn to Where am I? Um, you're in a room. It looks a bit like a kitchen. And Melly, oh, hello. That you saw it's you again, isn't it? 
We yes. never did get to be introduced, did we? What's your name, then? Julie. Oh, I like that. My first name is Melisandre, and my second is for happenstance. I've got a middle name, but I don't like it much, so I've stopped telling it to people. Anyway, they arrive in the kitchen, and unfortunately, Melisandre is here. And this is the first time that it's revealed that she has a surname, for happenstance. She mentions having a middle name, but she doesn't like it much, and in later times, that middle name will be revealed to be Makepeace. Um, I don't see why she has a problem with that. It sounds like a rather positive middle name. So, uh, obviously, she's a badass under all of that <laughs> so Melly offers Julie an apple but slightly unusually for her she wants something in return today Julie offers her the cloth which we now know is a scarf and Melly says this is actually her scarf and by carrying her favour the team are dedicated in their quest to her <gasps> oh golly this is exciting and don't think I'm not honoured because goodness me I am no you can have the apple thank you I'll put it in your bag and I'll give you a little rhyme as well. It's quite complicated, so that's why I wrote it down as I was making it up. Here it is. You listening? Yes. Through the door and follow on, the path is straight, the road is long. When by the lion you are met, tread with care, the path is cleft. You may have to lose the lamp of light, but flare, the spell, will put you right. She also tells the team that the first step is the hop and warns them not to abandon her favour before wishing them luck and leaving the room. She actually sounds quite threatening about uh, not abandoning the favour. This presents an interesting gameplay modification. It's a quandary for the future, isn't it? Julie has been told she mustn't abandon the favour, but she has to abandon level one clue objects when she gets to the railway, doesn't she? Yes. So I wonder if there was some kind of confrontation between Julie and Melly was planned for later in the quest. And, uh, you know, that, that's a fearsome opponent to have to come face to face with at the end of level two, isn't it? Well, like I thought it'd be interesting if um, on this occasion they had to keep the favour between levels. They didn't abandon it. And that would limit her ability to carry more clue objects. It doesn't get mentioned again after this, so we, we, no. we, all we could do is speculate. The thing that's kind of blocking it all off is, is remembering the way that um, the series is scripted. You don't know exactly which level one, level two story is going to follow the level one story because you don't know when each Dungeoneer is going to die. So this level two story, I think, I think it must have been about five later um, that... This is Team 12, isn't it? So we've had 12 Level 1 yeah. stories so far. Um, but this is probably going to be only about the the, the eighth Level 2 story that they're going mm. into. So there would have been no reason for the eighth one to be written in with this uh, <laughs> the story about the favour in it. So they'd, they'd have had to do some quite heavy modifications to the script for it. My suspicion is that they just it just it just doesn't get mentioned again because it just doesn't it just doesn't matter anymore. But it is interesting how you don't see Julie dropping the favor, but she doesn't have it when she's on the Mills of Doom in level two. Honey, Julie, don't stop whatever you do. The way ahead seems open, but I think I detect something coming behind you, Hi, and Julie. it appears to be gaining. Julie, 
we can't blame the team for this. Yeah. This is one of the worst examples yet of sped up footage being used to simulate running. In all fairness, I have never seen a good example of that. It's, it's <laughs> no, really unfair good. on Mr. Grimwald and Brian McNerney. Um, he's there to make the situation look really fearsome, but every time you see him in one of the corridors, instead you're bracing yourself for Benny Hill. <laughs> but uh, it gets even worse in season four. Some of the uh, running footage in the forest looks absolutely hysterically bad. Where am I? You're in a room, Julie, with um, the path sort of broken in places, so we've got to direct you very carefully. Okay, so listen carefully to our instructions. The door's straight opposite you, but the path is broken in several places, so you have to step to your sides and things, okay? Yes, so and it'll be best if you do really little steps so we can direct you very carefully. The broken pathway of the lion's head chamber greets our team, and the team actually do quite well here. And aside from a slight moment of panic when a skull haunting appears, it's really only Judy's sense of balance that's causing any issues. But she does make it all the way across and through to the next area. It's quite well handled that. The team make a bit of a, you know, they do go around the houses a bit to over-explaining the manoeuvres here. Mm. Just say diagonally forward to your left and, and you're fine. But again, pretty solid guidance and, and, and solid manoeuvring. Forward. Yes, keep, keep going. going. Where am I? You're on a ledge and to your right is a quite a severe drop. Um, there's some carvings on the stone to your left which says four. In Roman numerals. There's a bit before that, isn't there? Could you just take a little step back, Julie? Don't waste life force, Steve. So we arrive at the old ledge crossings once again. I've got long-running issues with Olaf, and these scenes here are probably the final tipping point for me, and make it very clear to me that they were right to get rid of him at the end of the season, because as a character, he's completely lost here. He's completely lost all menace. Yeah. He's just... Literally. That's exactly the word I was going to use as well. Yeah. Anyway, they move Julie so that they can examine the uh, the market, the carvings on the rock wall, but Tregard tells them it's not worth wasting life force on. It probably, I think that's the final conclusive thing. that it, It's a complete red herring, those carvings. So they walk straight ahead, but just before Julie exits the scene... Hey, hey, you! Be waiting for the lootings! Every time I hear him going, Hey, you! I want to follow it up with... Don't watch that! Watch this! They get as far as ledge crossing free. Julie's moving so fast, just ignoring Olaf. The fact that she's able to get away with just ignoring Olaf again doesn't help the menace of the guy. I actually think, you know, um, when Olaf catches up with Julie, he's out of breath. I actually think Tom Carroll genuinely is out of breath there. (laughs) (laughs) I'm pretty sure he thought he was going to be doing this bit of the scene actually back on ledge crossing too. To be fair, he probably had an hour break when they switched ledge crossing one to ledge crossing three. So anyway, Olaf finally catches up when they're on the north-south ledge instead of the east-west ledge. Now, turn to face Olaf like a dish. That's a good... (sighs) Now, no lootings, no leavings without the lootings. Come, come. What you got for Olaf? That's the rules. Come, come, show what you got. Eh? Tom rather fluffs his lines a little here, but recovers well enough. And Julie shows Olaf the candle, which he seems happy with. I never realised he was this easily bribed before. You, you could literally bribe him with anything. Yeah, he would have been just as happy with the empty jar of humbug. I think he would. Olaf seems to have forgotten how looting works, because he then gives Julie something... In return, without even being asked for it, yeah. He's just too amenable here. He was always someone who's not massively aggressive or anything, but for all the lootings 
and pillagings talk he's doing again here. There's absolutely no perceptible threat from him here at all. In the end, the whole sequence is just a straight exchange of an item for information. In Susan 2, he was very much a comedy bad guy, but there was still at least a hint of menace from him. He wasn't just a stupid, thick Viking stereotype. Here, he doesn't even get annoyed at the way Julie just ignored him on the first two ledges and just walked <laughs> away from him. You know, the, he, the stereotype Scandinavian dimwit is all that is left now. And I think when you get to that point, you know, it's it's time to get rid of the character and, and come up with another one. Oh, a candle. Oh, let me see. Oh, yes, it's a very beautiful. <laughs> oh, Olaf is very happy. Now, what is your name? Julie. Julie. Oh, Julie. Now, because you make Olaf so very happy, Olaf give you a secret. Yeah? The second step is the handshake. Yeah, the handshake. Right. Good. Okay, off you go now. Bye-bye, Julie. Bye. Now, all I want Turn is the lightings. Turn to your left, I've said. And walk, walk forward. Keep going. Keep on going. Slightly lead. Where am I? You're in a dark room, so we're going to cast a spell, okay? The room is completely black. The only thing we can see is a skull haunting in the upper right corner. I do find the red stars um, on a shirt that the middle advisor is wearing extremely distracting. Um, it's very 80s. When you've got a blank screen like that and then you suddenly switch to her, it really jumps out at you. It's the kind of thing that would be fashionable to wear nowadays because it's so 80s. <laughs> yes, precisely. Spell casting. F L. A-R-E. Right, Julie, walk forward quickly. They cast the flare spell and, and the room lights up, revealing the well way to level two. And here the haunting suddenly really starts moving. It's just chasing after yeah, quite like, aggressively. Yeah, it attacks Julie and damages her life force. Despite this, the team do seem to take their sweet time, in my opinion, to getting into the well. There is a bunch of bananas on the side and they get knapsacked as Julie descends into the next level. Right, now climb over the, into the well. Quickly. <laughs> Where am I? You're on some wheels, rotor wheels. Um, Caution team, these mechanical monstrosities are the mills of doom. Beware, for the bats in this particular belfry are extremely poisonous. To the mills of doom, which is actually a bit of a surprise, isn't it? Um... So uh, we usually land on the spin dizzy to start uh, level two, but here we're on the hogs of infinite slowness. There's a sword above the door, which they initially mistake for a quest piece until Treyguard instructs them otherwise, and they do a pretty good job here. Yeah, they do. It's uh, probably the fastest I've seen the Mills of Doom be done, to be honest. Absolutely. Once again, watch the workings in the background and notice how they slow down time passes. A genuine question here. Does anyone, you or any of the listeners, have any idea what that strange slab-like object that slides horizontally in and out of view in line with the pendulum is actually supposed to represent? No, I just thought it was some kind of piston or something. It's a very, very odd-shaped piston. It's probably just something else added in to make the background look extra busy. It just doesn't hurt to make it make sense, that's all. Where am I? You're in a room and there's an old man sitting in the centre and he's writing something down on a table, on a book that's on the table. Ah, yes, the next one, please do. Come and sit down. 
Nothing to be afraid of. Parts of the scene with Hordes taking minutes and sorting out the paperwork kind of foreshadow some of his frequent roles in season four. I also like how when he tells Julie to never mind the dreadful fate awaiting her, you can tell that he really doesn't mind at all. I quite like this scene because I think it's the most Hordrissy that Hordris gets. He actually is being confusing here. I think the term confuser is actually meant to, to um underline the fact that he often confuses good with evil he can't tell the difference between them at, at, at least at this stage he can't but uh he can also have a confusing effect on others and that's that definitely comes to the fore with the rather ridiculously labyrinthine clue he gives julie for the way ahead the number three um was very very important in druidic culture they took a great deal of um pride in understanding perspective in most primitive cultures you've got two things you've got night you've got day you've got the sun you've got the moon to mix your opposites but in order to perceive and understand and appreciate these opposites you have to stand at a third perspective and that's what druids do and that's why druids often tried to remain neutral. It's why Druids were excellent at administering law in pre-Celtic societies, because they were standing at a third perspective, they were a neutral perspective, and that made them more objective, and they were able to pass judgment more fairly than might otherwise have been the case. Hordris, just like Merlin, could very well be a, 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 some kind of offshoot of Druidism. If you're trying to fit them in the real world, that probably is where they would come from. Hordris is sitting in the middle of the room at a table. He's using a quill to write in a book, but we can't see what. There's a stool by the table in front of him and he invites the dungeoneer to sit. Right, this won't take a moment. Name first, please. Julie. Julie. Mm. And your purpose of mission, Julie, what are you questing for? To find the sword. To find the sword. The sword. Yes, well, that seems clear enough, if a trifle dreary. I suppose you realise, Julie, that if you go beyond this point, you're likely to meet a dreadful fate. Does that worry you? <laughs> uh -huh. Well, never mind. Uh, let's get on. Listen now very, very closely. The doors behind me are numbered one to five. From the right hand, as you're looking at them, to the left, which is, of course, on my right. Now, all the evenly numbered doors are deadly. Except the one to the left, which is merely dangerous. Whilst all the odd numbers are safe, except the one on the extreme right. It's also considered most perilous to go straight ahead. <laughs> there now. That couldn't be clearer, could it? Having now lived up to his title, the Confuser, Hordris tells Julie that the next step is the stretch. He then returns to his writing. The team takes some time to discuss the solution to the puzzle, uh, so much so that Treyguard has to issue three life force warnings. And to be fair, it's, it's not an easy word puzzle to work out, but by the time they have chosen the door on the far left, the clock is down to the skull. That's definitely not one of the better scenes, I'll agree with that. In spite of everything, it's actually not that difficult to unravel the clue. They are kind of being a bit overloaded with information. Yeah, it's, it did all come at them in one go, but if you stop and think about it, all you've got to do is just write off one exit for every bit of the clue that he gives you. They seem to get it right, though. Yes, they do, but that's the main thing. Where am I? 
Um, you're in a room and there's some bread on the table, so we're going to get the bread quickly. Rather an unusual alliteration of the clue with the Dungeon not arriving at the top of the stairs, but instead appearing in what is usually the exit. Is it fair to continue calling it a clue room? Because there's very rarely many clues in it, unless you count the oracle. Well, it's its name. <laughs> if you think about <laughs> that, um, a, a fort is a fort, even though they're not used as forts anymore. They're just, they're, they're, That's true. They're mainly just used as tourist traps. So it just doesn't fulfil the purpose it used to have, but it's still what it is. So anyway, all that's on the table is this loaf of bread, which uh, gets knapsacked in time. Once life forces back to green, a skull haunting appears and begins chasing Julie up the stairs and through the door. Where am I? Stop. Don't move him. <laughs> a massive pit in front of you. And on the other side of the pit, there's, this, there's a chair with a mat. And you have to walk round it. I don't think you can walk hand Listen, it. team, you've reached a magic place. But to invoke that magic, you must take the right steps. The team have made it to Men's Throne Room, and to their credit, it doesn't take them long to figure out what to do. But before they can put anything into practice... I don't think you'll be asking Julie to do anything for a while, team, because time seems to have stopped for her. Yeah. And now it's stopped for you, too. Infuriating, these temporal disruptions. But so necessary in the busy, confusing world where you live. No such complications here. We'll simply wait in patience until you phase with us once more. Join us again soon for a nightmare. And take a step back into the unknown. What do we think of the episode then? As, as, I, we seem to be in disagreement over this one. I've, I've rather liked it. Yes, the team have their decisive moments. I, we've seen far worse from other teams for that. I think that's the problem. I think that we've had a few teams in a row that have been quite bad. Other teams have used up your patience, I think, maybe what's yeah. actually happening here, which maybe is understandable. That's it. And I feel bad for, like, I, I don't, like, you know I don't like punching down. So I feel bad for not liking this team. Just occasionally they, they sort of, um, bash heads, which doesn't help, and, and, um, they, mm. and, and sometimes they give guidance over each other. But more often than not, their guidance and manoeuvring are, are actually pretty solid. And it's not a particularly slow or awkward episode. I'd say there isn't much in it that you don't find elsewhere in Nightmare. They haven't chosen anything bad or unworkable. I'd actually argue this is one of the better episodes in recent times. If you would give somebody an example of a season three episode to help them get on the wavelength, you could do worse than this one. So anyway, that was season three, episode 12. Yes. If you like the podcast, you can follow us on Twitter. We're at NightmarePod. If you want to support the podcast, we're Nightmare Pod on Patreon. Speaking of Patreon, here's a shout out to keepers of the book of quests Peter Pulsford and David N. Rabbit. Advisors Benjamin Bloom, Peter Siddorm, David Thompson, and our newest and our day say most average supporter. <laughs> I don't want to say I don't want to say best or worst because otherwise I'll, otherwise I'll offend either them or everybody else. Yeah, yeah but you're, you're basically husband. you're basically saying Stephen Whalen, yeah. He's, Eh. He's all right. He'll do. He'll do. Yeah, that's fine. That's right. fine. He'll do. <laughs> Stephen Whelan. Stephen Whelan, you're all right, mate. Is it pronounced Whelan or Whelan? Stephen, is it pronounced Whelan or Whelan? Is he any more or less average than Dungeoneer Peter Corridge, though? Oh, much less average than him. Oh, bloody hell. When it comes to average, I can't describe how average Peter Corridge is. We value all our patrons equally, especially the ones that pay us more. <laughs> 
Oh dear, we really have given it away this week. <laughs> <laughs> Love you really, Peter Courage. Love you really, mate. Do you know what? Most of our listeners now have been listening long enough to get our sense of humour and I hope so. that we we appreciate you all equally because without you we wouldn't be doing this precisely you can support us on patreon at dungeoneer level or above to get your name mentioned in the podcast high level perks also receive merchandise have access to exclusive episodes and if you pledge as a keeper of the book of quests we will even offer you the chance to be a guest on our podcast our website is nightmarepod.co.uk if you're looking for temporal discussion merchandise including t-shirts stickers and other products it's at nightmarepod.rebel you can email us at podcast at nightmarepod.co.uk And just keep telling yourself, it's only a podcast. A really average one. <laughs> is it bong or dong, do you think? Well, bong is more polite because dong has a secondary meaning that I think you probably Yeah, but know. bong could be a drug reference. It's still more polite than a aubergine reference.